Today's scripture comes from Psalms 145. I will extol you, God, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and greatness and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all he has made. And your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him and also hears their cries and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I lift up this congregation in this service this morning. God, I pray that you have our hearts and minds open to the words that are going to be shared with us today. God, I pray that you give us hearts that meditate on your goodness, your righteousness, your trustworthiness, God, and pray that we have lived lives that speak glory to your name, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for leading us in worship this morning and Melanie for reading that scripture for us. I'm excited to come before you all, um, as always, to be able to bring to you the word this morning. Um, as Melanie just read a second ago, we're going to be in Psalm 145. Um, if you're writing things down, uh, the title of my message this morning is A Final Song of Praise. A Final Song of Praise. And one of the really great things that we've been able to do over the summer is we've been able to go through both the Psalms and the Proverbs. And so it's my privilege this morning to be able to bring to you guys one of the final messages in Psalms and Proverbs as we get ready to transition into the fall series in just a couple weeks. You know, typically when I stand before you guys, I always begin with a question. So I want to ask you guys a question like we normally do. Um, and the question I want to ask you this morning is, when was the last time that you thought about the legacy that you will leave when you pass on? When's the last time you thought about your legacy? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What is my legacy? What legacy will I leave behind when I pass on to be with the Lord? You know, meditating on this question, I think, is one of the really great signs of good spiritual health, is you want to constantly reflect on what you're leaving behind. And you know, when I think of a person who left a godly legacy, I oftentimes think of the person who wrote this psalm this morning. I oftentimes think of David. 
You see, this was the final psalm of David. This was the very last psalm that he wrote down that he penned. And so it gives us a really great glimpse into his life. You see, David was a man who showed us so many great things. You know, he showed us what it meant to be a godly king. David showed us what a picture of strength and toughness looked like whenever he took on the lion, the bear, and Goliath. And even when he took on Goliath, David said that he did that based upon the faithfulness of God's word. He said, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He steadfastly stood on God's word. He knew he was going to have victory that day over Goliath because God had prophesied that to him. You see, David showed us that you can be both tough and tender because he was the warrior who was a poet. You see, even our Savior Jesus in Revelation, he called himself the root and the descendant of David. And there's no greater words that you could uh, hear about yourself than to hear the Son of God eternally connecting himself to the person of David, to the person of this great king. Jesus says, you want to know who I am? I am the root and the descendant of David. I come from the line of David. David showed us what godly covenant or friendship looked like in his relationship with Jonathan. And David also was entrusted by God to write down the words of holy scripture. You know, there's 150 Psalms and 73 out of those 150 were written by David. He was a great example of what it meant to be a godly king, a godly person. And as I told you when I preached through uh, Psalm 1 many, many weeks ago, back in May, I said that one of the really unique things about the Psalms is that Jesus quoted more from the Psalms than he did any other book in the entire Old Testament. That was the book that he went to the most whenever he quoted from the Scripture. So Jesus has this very elevated view of the book of Psalms. And so I want to be faithful to that this morning. The enduring legacy that David left to us was one of faithfulness to God. You see, he was broken like all creatures on this side of eternity are. He was broken. But when you sum up the whole of his life, you see a faithful man who was um, attached to the person and work of God. You see, David's legacy was a godly legacy, and his final words to us in Scripture are contained here in Psalm 145, and the last thing he tells us is to praise the Lord. As we read and reflect this morning on David's words, I want you to reflect on your legacy. I want you to reflect on what God is calling you to contribute to his kingdom. You see, you shouldn't be surprised to know that several of the aspects of God that we see right here in this psalm that David would say are praiseworthy of him are the exact same meditations that we should leave behind for future generations to follow. In this, the last psalm that David ever penned before he went to be with the Lord, we see the goal and the purpose of every life, which is unceasing praise to an awe-inspiring God. David titles this psalm, he says, a meditation of praise. And so as I've broken up this message, I want to give you guys three points this morning, uh, three main points. My first point this morning is praise God for his glory. Praise God for his glory. Normally, uh, when we're walking through uh, the Bible, we take you through uh, expositionally, we take you verse by verse. But this morning, uh, there's just 
far too much here to be able to go verse by verse. So I'm only going to give you a little insight into four verses out of these 21 verses that we have before us. So let's begin by looking at verse 3 and read these words. The word of the Lord says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. You see, God is greatly to be praised. One of the things that we value here in this body of Christ is God's glory. We clearly see the glory of God here in this text of the Psalms. God is worthy of the greatest praises that we can sing to him. Spurgeon, when commenting on this verse, he wrote these words, Worship should be somewhat like its object, great praise for a great God. In some beings, greatness is but vastness of evil. In him, it's magnificence of goodness. Praise may be said to be great when the song contains great matter, when the hearts producing it are intensely fervent, and when large numbers unite in the grand acclaim. There is no chorus too loud, no orchestra too large, no psalm too lofty for the lauding of the Lord of hosts. Spurgeon says that you can't create a band that's big enough for this God. This God, you, can't, you can have a thousand verse choir and even that is not enough for the greatness of God. Because when you consider how great and separate from us, how magnificent God is, he is worthy of so much more than we can possibly give him, Spurgeon says. And when I think about the greatness of God, it reminds me of the words of my youth pastor. My youth pastor used to say these words. He used to say, God is large and in charge. And that's, that's very colloquial, right, you know, uh, but it really expresses this idea that I think is really essential for us. It expresses this idea that God is bigger than we are, and God is in control. God is in charge. You see, God is the God who reports to no one. And praise, the praising of God, the praising of this great God, it completes the enjoyment. You see, we naturally praise the things that we enjoy. When you see great art, you praise it. And when you are traveling through a neighborhood and you see this beautiful home, you praise it. Or even when you're somewhere out in nature and you see this grand view, you can't help but to express that through words. You can't help but to share that with other people. And so naturally we see that what we inherently do as as humans, as creatures, is we inherently praise the beautiful things that we see in this world around us. And how much more so is God worthy of praise with him being the greatest being that has ever existed or that ever will exist? God is greatly to be praised. C.S. Lewis, he wrote these words. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
but we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him, C.S. Lewis says. And I feel like that is uh, such a great summation of like what it means to praise, is we naturally praise God. The praise completes the enjoyment. You're not able to savor it enough until you actually express it with your mouth. And that is what God is calling us to do out of this psalm here this morning from David. David is telling us that the Lord is great and he is greatly to be praised. You know, I think back to Hebrews 1.3, which says, He, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Isaiah 41 tells us these words. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or to what likeness compares with him? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits encircled upon the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing And makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. From whom will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name. To the greatness of his might and because of his strong power, not one of them, not one star is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and why do you speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Isaiah tells us that when he thinks about God, he sees that God holds everything within his hand, and he is an all-powerful God. That reminds me that that there was once a uh, part in our history, way back in the past, whenever people used to think that the earth was flat. And here we have in Isaiah, who wrote those words 400 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah says, the Lord sits encircled upon the earth. He sits upon the circle of the earth. We see here in Scripture that these words that God has given us are trustworthy and true. We can rely upon the words of God. And Isaiah says that when I think about that God, he is magnificent. He's great. Why would you not praise him? 
You remember the story of Job, don't you? Job, who, who was, um, you know, Satan came to God and Satan said, you know, you have a servant in Job. And Job, he's a person who follows you so well. But if you were to tempt him and to test him and to take away all of those good things, Job would surely abandon you, God. And so God allows Satan to, to be able to destroy so much that was in Job's life. And Job, when he reflects back on God, he says these words. God stretches the northern sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps the rain in his thick clouds, and the clouds don't burst with the weight. He covers the face of the moon, shrouding it with his clouds. He created the horizon when he separated the waters. He set the boundary between day and night. The foundations of heaven tremble. They shudder at his rebuke. By his power, the sea grew calm. By his skill, he crushed the great sea monster. His spirit made the heavens beautiful, and his power pierced the gliding serpent. These are just the beginning of all that he does, merely a whisper of his power. Who then can comprehend the thunder of his power? Job, when he reflects on God, he says, this God is all-powerful. He has all power within himself. You see, one of the, the things that, that reminds me of just God's power is the flood. And what was really interesting is every year for my birthday, uh, my birthday's in April, but I usually take my birthday trip in uh, the summertime because uh, for the last 10 years I've been teaching. And so summertime is a free time. And uh, normally for my birthday, which I take the trip over the summer, uh, we go to a different place around the country. And this year, uh, we actually went to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, and just a random suggestion that someone gave us, and we were like, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll go there. What's, what's in New Mexico? Uh, so we went to Albuquerque, um, and one of the coolest things that we got a chance to do was we got to go on this tram. Um, it was the Sandia Peak Tram, and we took this tram 3,800 feet up into the mountain. It took us 15 minutes to get from the base to the very top of this great mountain, and it was, for me, the highest mountain that I've ever been on. And so as we got to the top of this mountain, I remember we're just kind of like walking around and kind of exploring the top of this mountain. And I saw this really unusual thing on the top of this mountain. I saw these seashells. And so I kind of turned over some more dirt and kept walking. I found more seashells. And I just kept going around, you know, through the grass and through a little forest wooded area. And there were just seashells everywhere. And as I saw those seashells, I was just reminded of the fact that there was a point in time in the distant paths where God flooded the entire earth. And so despite the fact that I am on the highest mountain that I've ever been on, on the height of this like great mountain peak, like it makes sense that there's seashells up here because God in his power, God in his greatness, he flooded the entire earth. And this is just a reminder to me of the fact that all the words that he has written in that book are true and reliable and trustworthy. And so for me, that was, that was one of the, the great takeaways uh, from that trip was just a reminder of the sheer magnificent power of God that even in what is now a desert in New Mexico, once upon a time, way back in the past, was indeed flooded with the entire earth. You see, God shows us his power and all that he has made for us on this planet. You know, I think uh, to, to the, the Western Pacific, and, and, and in the Western Pacific, there's the, the Mariana Trench, and that trench is over six miles deep, 
this incredibly deep trench. It's so deep that you can take 120 football fields and you can stack them end on end on end and you can put all 120 football fields into that trench and it still will be deeper than that. And this God that we serve, Isaiah just told us in, in uh, chapter 41, this God that we serve, he says that he holds the ocean in his hands. To God, the ocean is as nothing to him. And yet to us, it is so big, so powerful. We see that God is great in all that he has made. Isaiah tells us that they are as nothing to him because he is a great, great God. And you see, the greatness of God for David led him to want to praise God. It led him to want to express the greatness of God. And that reminds me of that story back in 2 Samuel 6 where David talks about the ark. And 2 Samuel 6 says this. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from the ark of the Lord, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. And we'll jump down just a bit to verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs, with lyres and harps and trampolines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Yuzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. You see, they were just trying to transport the ark from where it was being housed into the capital city of the Israelites. And as they're trying to transport it, Uzzah, who, who is just trying to make sure that it gets from point A to point B, he sees the oxen stumble and it's about to fall. And he just grabs it to stop the ark of God from hitting the ground. And when he grabs it, God instantly kills him. And then verse 7 says, And David was angry because of the Lord, because he had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David was so overcome that when they had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened animal, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one, the entire nation. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, 
came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, his female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all of his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. You see, David said, when the ark of God, which held the presence of God, was brought into the city, the capital city, he said, he shouted, he danced, he praised the Lord. They had all of these instruments. They sang and they rejoiced as loudly and as furiously as they could. They gave their entire might to celebrating the return of God's glory into God's city. David said, I don't care what you thought about me because God was worthy of my best. God was worthy of the highest praise I could possibly give him. He says, I will be even more foolish than this because that's how great God is. He praised God with such a fervency that no person, not even his own wife in his own home, no person could turn his heart away from passionately pursuing God. You see, here in this passage, we see the greatness of God because of the great holiness of God and because of his great worth. And David said, there is no one that will stop me from worshiping him with reckless abandon. You see, God is worthy of us looking foolish. He should be our priority. God is our priority, not our pride. And I love the example of David here. I love how God's praise has so taken hold of him that he didn't care how foolish he looked. He poured everything out for God. He is worthy of our best praise. And so I encourage you this week to spend some time meditating on the unsearchable, to use the word of David in verse 3, the unsearchable greatness of God. He is truly worthy of a lifetime and an eternity even of study because we can never fully yield the greatness of him. And so we see the greatness of God. This reminds us of his glory. But not only that, look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this of Psalm 145. David says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. From one generation, he says, to another. You see, here David commends us to tell of God's works from one generation to another. We are constantly reminded of God's mighty acts in our lives, and we're to share that message with those that we come to contact with. He officially gave the nation of Israel that proclamation whenever he told them after the Passover that every year that you celebrate the Passover, you're to tell this story to your children. You're to tell them about how I, the Lord, brought them out of Egypt into this house of freedom, into a place where they could worship and know me. He says, pass this story down from one generation to the next. And even now in 2019, there are people who pass that story down from one generation to the next. Every year, remind them of the great Passover of God. And then we also see not only the nation of Israel, but we see, we see in the New Testament, we see in Timothy the, the faithfulness of God. 
You see, Timothy was able to hear the message of Christ from his mother and his grandmother. Timothy says that he heard the message from not only his mother Eunice, but also his grandmother Lois. And the story of Christ went from one generation to another generation to another. And one of the last things that Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul tells Timothy to pass on what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Through Timothy, the message of Christ was to go from one generation to another and another. One of my favorite spiritual heroes is George Mueller. And George Mueller uh, was a, an Englishman, and when he was 20 years old, uh, he was converted to Christ. He, he had previously wanted to go into uh, the, the clergy just because his father thought it was a great profession, uh, but in the midst of that, he actually discovered Jesus, and he became a believer. And so when George Mueller was 20 years old, he began to follow Christ, and he died at the age of 93. And for the entirety of his life, from 20 to 93, he lived this faithful life to God. And his enduring legacy was the fact that he built these orphanages in England. And around the time of his death, there were over 2,000 fatherless and motherless children in England that were provided for within those homes that he created. His legacy endured long after he passed on. He left a godly legacy, and he was so overcome by the Spirit of God that he felt like he had to pass on the faithfulness of God from one generation to another. And recognizing that the fact that these children had no moms and they had no dads, over 2,000 of them in the country of England, he said that he was going to be the one to step into the gap and to pass along the message of Christ and make sure that they knew the Savior. And so that's always something that encourages me about George Mueller is that from 20 to 93, he faithfully served God. He was faithful to give people God's message and God's word. And you see, that is something that God has also called us to do. God has called us, each one of us, to be faithful to him and to serve him well. He made an eternal impact in the lives of all of those fatherless and motherless children. And may God make us just as faithful as he was to his dying day. If we are going to be a generation that declares the mighty acts of God, as we're encouraged to do in this verse here, we must be faithful to that God, faithful to him. And so I submit to you a few questions for your, for your ponderance, so to speak. Do you declare the mighty acts of God? You know, th this is what David tells us to do, but do you declare the mighty acts of God? Has God demonstrated his faithfulness to you? How often do you pass down the stories of God's faithfulness to other generations? This is the encouragement that we receive right here from this text. And so the first point is to, to praise God for his glory, but not only praise God for his glory, also, number two, praise God for his goodness. Praise God for his glory, but also praise God for his goodness. Verse 8 says these words. Verse 8 says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. See, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is an often repeated phrase in the Old Testament. It's a testimony to God's grace in the Old Covenant. 
And what we see is this word, this idea of grace right here in the Old Testament, this idea of grace. We oftentimes think of grace as being connected to the New Testament, but it's also connected to the Old Testament. One of uh, my favorite ideas in all of Scripture is this idea of grace. It's one of the most necessary words in Scripture. Without God's grace, we would cease to exist. This is the words of Spurgeon again. Spurgeon, he wrote these words. He says, He freely gives grace in all his forms to his people. Saving grace, comforting grace, preserving grace, sanctifying grace, directing grace, instructing grace, assisting grace. He gives grace abundantly, seasonably, constantly, readily, and sovereignly. God gives grace. God is a God of grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, they say these words, you probably have them memorized. It says, for by grace, for it is by grace through faith that you have been saved, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We see that God has saved us by grace. God is a God of grace. God saves us wholly of grace. You aren't good enough. You can't be good enough. There are no works that you can perform. If you are going to survive in God's presence, it will only be because of his grace. I'm reminded when I think about this concept of grace, I'm reminded of my rebel heart whenever I was just an, an eighth grader. I, I can remember back to, to that time. And I remember even at that time that, that my words often did not honor God. I had no desire for pure speech. And I would pride myself on how well I could deceive others. You see, I had no problem tearing down my peers and there was nothing but cursing and bitterness in my soul. If you could have looked at me with spiritual x-ray vision, you would have seen great darkness within my soul. But it was in the ninth grade that God would eventually apprehend me with his grace. And Alexander White, he wrote these words about grace. But grace has only one direction that it can take. Grace always flows down. And in a similar vein, Philip Yancey, he wrote these words, Grace, like water, flows to the lowest part. One of the spiritual realities that we should constantly be reminded of um, as one of the foundations of our salvation is God's character. God's character. Philip Brooks, he wrote these words, One who has been touched by grace will no longer look on those who stray as those evil people or those poor people who need our help, nor must we search for signs of loveworthiness. Grace teaches us that God loves because of who God is, not because of who we are. You see, it's the character of God that causes him to extend to us his grace. And that grace flows all the way down to the lowest parts. See, God's acts of kindness towards us has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with his character. He is gracious and merciful, to quote 
David, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We praise God for his goodness and his grace. You see, I was the perfect candidate for God's grace, even in the darkness of my soul, because he only shows grace to sinners. And I wasn't special. His grace wasn't, isn't something that is only for me. God's grace extends even now to all those who don't know him, to all those who are without Christ. And so if you are in this room right now and you are without Christ, without God in this room this morning, I want to appeal to you this day to trust in Jesus, to understand that he is a God who is so slow to anger. He is a God who is gracious. He is a God who is abounding in steadfast love. He is never quick to condemn. His arms are open even now. We praise God for his goodness. But not only do we praise God for his goodness, we, we praise God for his glory, we praise God for his goodness, but my final point is this point. We praise God for his saving mercy. We praise God for his saving mercy. Verse 18 says these words. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. God is near to all all who call upon him. And I love the story of the book of Jonah. One of the surprising twists in that story are the words of Jonah after God saves the Ninevites. After Jonah preaches the message to the Ninevites and after God saves them and transforms them, Jonah, he wrote these words. He said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You see, Jonah didn't want to preach to the Ninevites because he knew the character of God. He knew that God loves to relent of the disaster that he promises. The people and the king, they, they turned from their evil way and they were saved by God. And they, what, what Jonah says in verse 3, 8 is they called out mightily to God. With their whole heart, they sought him. Those sailors who called out to God in the book of Jonah, whenever Jonah was, was on the boat and, and the boat was in the midst of the ocean, it was being tossed and turned and all of the, the, the people on the boat, they were freaking out and they were trying to figure out what's going on and they all brought out their, 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 their idols and their gods and they're calling out to their gods and they're trying to figure out which God is going to save us, which God is going to save us. And they eventually found Jonah asleep in the boat like he was so like content and disobeying God that he was perfectly sound asleep in the bottom of the boat and they go down there to Jonah and they wake him up and they bring him up and they say, Jonah, call upon your God too. And Jonah does. Jonah calls upon the name of the Lord, and they realize that the God that Jonah served, that was the real God. All those other gods that they were calling out to, those were false gods. Those were fake gods. Those were gods that couldn't save. Those were gods that couldn't stop the water. But the God that Jonah was calling upon, that was the true God. And they they realized that when they took Jonah and they tossed him over the edge of the the boat, and he went into the ocean, and uh, instantly everything was still and calm and perfect. 
God showed his power to them that day. And what all of those people did on that boat, this, this wasn't Jonah's design. This wasn't Jonah's purpose, but this was God's purpose. What, what God did that day was cause them all, the book of Jonah says, to call upon the name of the Lord. They were saved by God. They trusted in the one true and living God because of what happened that day with Jonah. And so we see that these unbelievers, these people who didn't know Christ, that despite the fact that they were not Israelites and not a part of God's covenant people, they were able to call upon the Lord and be saved. And so often you get this question. I'm sure you've gotten this question before if you've been in Christ for any length of time. So often you get this question. The question is, what about the person who has never heard the gospel? What about that person? Does, does that person go into eternal punishment? And what I submit to you this morning is to trust and believe in this. Trust and believe that God will send a witness to all those who sincerely desire him. He will send a witness. And that witness might be you. You might be that witness that God uses. You see, if you're a Christian in this room today, you have been called by God to spread God's glory among the nations and even in this nation. That's what God has called us to do. You see, it's like the Ethiopian eunuch who, who was reading the book of Isaiah in Acts chapter 8, and, and he was so close to salvation, but this eunuch was without God. And so what did God do? God sent Philip to preach to him the message of Christ, and the Ethiopian eunuch was saved by God. His eternal soul was saved by God. You see, God has his faithful witnesses scattered throughout. And I pray that you take the message that we have learned this past week in gospel community as we looked at, at, at evangelism, everyday evangelism. I pray that you would take that message, that you would give that message out to others. You would give that message out to other people. That you would realize that, that instead of worrying about like, well, does the person who's never heard about Christ, do they ever, you know, do, do they go into eternal punishment? The answer is yes. But, but that is the reason why God has saved you so that you could step into the gap, so that you could be a witness of God's glory, a witness of God's goodness, a witness of who God is to that person, a witness of God's saving mercy. He has saved you so that you can be that person that will give them that message. And so our, our questions and our priorities are misplaced because God has called all of us to be a witness to his glory and of his goodness. And when you think about David says, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call on him in truth. When you think about those words, I hope that you think about Jesus. I hope that you think about Christ. You see, Jesus came so that we could have life, he says in John 10, and have it more abundantly. Jesus came so that we can know God the Father. See, Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never spoke dishonestly. Jesus never broke any laws. The perfect man allowed himself to be falsely accused and hung upon a cross with nails to hold up his body. He became sin for us, and all the penalty for our rebellion and foolishness fell on him. And the one who knew the perfect love of God became our substitute and received the full wrath of God for every single person who would believe in him. Every wrong thought, every wrong attitude, every wrong action that we would ever commit, that anyone who would trust in him would ever commit, all of those sins fell upon Christ. 
You see, if you will receive this God today, you can have your penalty paid for as well. But to do that, you have to call upon the name of the Lord. You have to call upon the name of the Lord in truth. He is near to all those who call upon him in truth. You know that, that beautiful passage, don't you? In Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9, it says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul tells us in Romans. Every man, woman, boy, and girl who sincerely seeks him today will find him. Boldly, this, this is my exhortation to you this morning as we close, boldly engage your neighbors in gospel conversations so that they know the truth of who God is and they can call upon God in truth. Encourage your brothers and your sisters to cry out to God in prayer. Because that is how we call out to him as believers, is we cry out to God and pray and encourage them to do that. You have been equipped this morning with the good news of Jesus. And if you know God to be glorious, and if you know God to be good, and if you know God to be full of saving mercy, share that good news. Know that you have been empowered to call upon God. His Spirit has empowered you to call upon God. So call on Him today. Matthew and Luke tells us to ask, seek, knock. Jesus is near. Come to Him. Have you found Him? Or more importantly, has Jesus found you? Let's pray. Bow your heads with me as the band comes up. I want you to think about this. As you come to the end of your life, I hope that you can do what David did when he looked back and he wanted to sing God a song of pure praise for his goodness. He only titled two of his psalms. One he called the prayer of David, and this psalm he calls a song of praise. This morning we've looked at some of the reasons why David praised the Lord. And so the challenge for you today is will you praise God with sincerity? for his glory, his goodness, and his saving mercy. I pray that you will use your head, heart, and hands to spread God's glory among the nations and even this nation. How important is praising God in your life? 
Those are the questions that I want you to think about. It's not just about talking or singing. I'm speaking about sincere words of gratitude to the Creator on a daily basis for all that He is and for all that He has done for you. Like David, what type of legacy will you leave behind? He left a legacy of praise behind. He left the last words out of his mouth were to praise the Lord. What type of legacy will you leave behind? I pray this morning that you have filled your minds with truth and that the feeling you have received leads to fueling your affections for God. If the feeling and the fueling don't lead to fervor, then everything that we said this morning is in vain. If we're going to be a community of people that leads people to become growing followers of Jesus Christ, then we must take God's words and put them into action. So as we enter into this time of prayer and as we enter into this time where we're just going to take communion, I pray that you think about the legacy that you leave behind. I pray that you think about whether or not you praise the Lord sincerely, you call upon him in truth. Reflect on those words as we enter into this time of worship.